Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ariel Pardes, Senior Associate Editor at Wired. Hello. And my co-host, Lauren Good, Senior Writer at Wired. Hello. This week, we will get into all things Apple. That's because the Cupertino company has just finished its annual developers conference and it showed off all kinds of software that's going to power your iDevices going forward, plus some pretty flashy hardware too. I don't know about you guys, but I personally am looking forward to just buying the $1,000 computer stand. Not buying the Mac Pro, just the stand. I'm just going to put it on the mantle. Just gonna, just gonna be a piece of art. I'm looking forward to buying the wildly expensive new Mac, which doubles as a cheese grater. Oh, yeah. Useful in the office, useful in the kitchen. The best part was after the event, there was this little hands-on area where reporters could go into, and they actually had the stand as a standalone product on a demo table because it was part of an AR app, a sort of interactive thing, where you'd walk around holding an iPad with an AR you know, app engine running on it and then something would appear where the stand was but it really just you'd walk in and it looked like it was just like the stand were they pokemon you know i don't know <laughs> I, I, I i don't know i didn't get that far it was just it was like a, it was like a beam of light from the heavens shining down on the stand but well, anyway yeah we will talk all about wwdc in the middle of the program but first very quickly we have to get through some of the other news that happened this week lauren would you like to go first okay 
So YouTube has just changed its hate speech policies so that they now effectively ban videos that promote the superiority of one group over another based on someone's age, gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, or veteran status. That's reported by Paris Martineau this week for Wired. And the new community guidelines specifically ban all videos that glorify Nazi ideology, which YouTube, which is owned by Google, of course, has determined is inherently discriminatory. Now, YouTube hasn't really said how it plans to identify the videos that are violating these um, adjusted policies. So we really don't have insight just yet into how effective this all will be. But it is worth noting two things. One, this is coming uh, just about a month after Facebook changed some of its community guidelines to limit the spread of extremist content, specifically around live videos. But once again, this seems to be one of those things where it's being done after something really bad has happened, as opposed to proactively on the part of the platform. Mm. And the YouTube changes are coming just as a well-known video journalist for Vox, Carlos Maza, has been highlighting some of the ways in which he is very seriously being harassed on YouTube. Maza is the host of Vox's video series, Strike Through, and another YouTuber named Steven Crowder has been making a series of videos that include repeat and very offensive statements about Maza's ethnic background and his sexual orientation. So Maza has been tweeting his extreme dissatisfaction uh, around the way YouTube has handled Crowder's videos, And then it just so happened that YouTube came up with these new policies. Now, YouTube has not removed Crowder's videos, though it has flip-flopped a bit around whether Crowder can run ads next to his videos. One of the people cited in Paris's story on Wired.com this week said, um, in some ways, this may just be... And I'm paraphrasing a bit, but a you know very brilliant and strategic PR move for YouTube. People have been on YouTube's case for months about cracking down on offensive content, and it just so happens that Carlos Maza is really bringing this to the forefront. And mm. oh, guess what? Now YouTube is changing its policies. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my question is, why has it taken YouTube so long? It seems like a pretty no, like it's it's like a no brainer of a question, right? That if you're posting things that are sort of promoting discrimination or violence or any of these things that we can agree are not welcome, um, why has it taken so long for them to, to form, formalize a policy around that? It seems like one of the arguments that has made specifically around Crowder's videos is that it wants to continue to offer a platform where people can express opinions and that it's trying to differentiate between opinions and something that is actually hateful or now seems to cross these new lines that they have drawn in the sand. And when it comes to things like that, too, that's incredibly nuanced content. So it's probably not easy to just say, well, we'll just dispatch some automated systems and we'll flag this stuff. I imagine people have to really go through with a fine tooth comb. But but this is not a new problem for YouTube. And they really should have been addressing this months ago. Yeah, it's not a new problem for any of the platforms in general that I mean, they've all been very careful about threading that that very fine line threading that fine line walking that very fine line Mm -hmm. between um, free speech and hate speech. Right. And it may seem very clear when you watch some videos, but there are some videos where it's not clear. And I think the hard part is when there's like very subtle imagery or like very subtle signaling that happens in those videos, where maybe somebody who's really familiar with it will be able to pick up on it and understand that that's the place where that person's coming from. Like if they're signaling some sort of like hand gesture or using particular words that other people in, uh, for example, like the white supremacy movement use that if you're not in the movement, you won't really recognize those things as signals. 
You need a human to be able to see that. And a human has to be able to determine whether or not if they're using those signals, even though they're not saying anything hateful in the video, does that still constitute hate speech, right? Does that still constitute something that violates their policies? And that's like, that's a really difficult problem for them to solve. Mm -hmm. um, normally, I wouldn't cry any tears for advertisers, but I am going to cry a little small tear for advertisers in this instance, because one of the big things that happens on YouTube is ads get retargeted. So you may buy ads for a specific group of people, and then your ads will start showing up for other groups of people. And there are advertisers who are seeing their ads run in front of videos that are ended up getting banned. And then, you know, they get notified that their ads are running in front of videos that are getting banned. And then people start seeing them as advertisers that are, you know, ripe for boycott. Right. So there's right. all, all kinds of implications that are going to happen because of this. And I'm not saying that this is like not a really good thing that YouTube is finally doing this, but... I think it's going to be pretty, it's going to change a lot of things about YouTube. Mm -hmm. And we'll be keeping an eye on that. Mm -hmm. Well, in other news, um, you know that feeling when you've got a flight to catch, but you just can't be bothered to like sit in traffic on the way to the airport. Maybe you're in an Uber where someone has way too many black ice air fresheners. Maybe you decided to go on the cheap and get the pool and someone's like chit-chatting. <laughs> well, Uber has a solution. It's called Ubercopter, and yes, it is a helicopter on demand. Starting next month in New York City, Uber customers will be able to book a helicopter ride from Lower Manhattan to JFK Airport that takes just eight minutes and a cool $200. Wow. So there are some caveats here. First of all, it is only available in New York, so San Franciscans like us will be stuck taking BART or regular Ubers. Womp womp. Second, it's only available to Uber's Platinum and Diamond members. Those are the upper echelons of Uber's loyalty program called Uber Rewards. And no, you do not qualify simply for having a 4.8 rating on Uber like I do, which is rude. Thirdly, <laughs> that $200 price tag could actually go up even higher because the helicopter rides will use the same dynamic pricing that Uber's cars use. So if there's more demand getting to JFK, you could potentially pay a little bit more. And another caveat is that you can't bring large bags. Apparently the helicopters have weight limits and there isn't enough space for you to bring those sort of like big bags you would check in. And the helicopters can't just pick you up from anywhere. So if you book a ride, an Uber car will have to bring you to a heliport near the Staten Island Ferry, and then you'll fly into the sky and be deposited at the airport. I have so many questions about this. Yeah. Okay, so, so just from a monetary perspective, it does seem like $200 is not a terrible amount of money if you're already paying around $65 to get from JFK to Manhattan, it's which yeah. I do pretty frequently. I mean, you could take uh, you could take the Long Island Railroad. You can take the JFK Air Tran, Air Tran, or Air Train, or whatever they call it. Then you could take the Long Island Railroad into the city, and that's really not a bad deal. But if you take a taxi cab, you're going to pay about sixty five dollars. And you're so, and you're going to wait like an hour trying to get to the airport, right? Or from Lower Manhattan. Yeah, I'm thinking more JFK into Manhattan. Uh, but you're totally right. You're going to it's going to take a really really long time. Um, and so the two hundred dollars isn't that terrible. But I'm curious how much the diamond membership costs, or the platinum, platinum or diamond. And then my second question is, so what happens if, you know, the pilot's approaching and they've got like a 4.6 star rating? <laughs> are you allowed to be like, dude, we're going up in a helicopter. These things are inherently like 
not supposed to stay in the air because of the way that they work. Um, like, would, could you cancel it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's a totally different rating system, but it's just funny to think about pilots having ratings on Uber. Copter. I also like love this idea. I mean, we should we should quickly mention that Uber Copter is um, is using pilots who have lots of helicopter experience. They're working with another helicopter company to pull this off. But I love this idea that like the way that Uber created this new job category where anyone can become a taxi driver essentially could could also work for helicopters. Like, are you bored of your day job? <laughs> right. You could be making. Fifteen dollars right. an so hour true. as a helicopter it's pilot. Like, did you Come get work. your PhD and can't find work now? Come work for Uber. Why a helicopter? <laughs> Mike is not as amazing. I just, I, I'm just thinking of like the people who will be taking this service, and I just want absolutely nothing to do with it. Well, we we should mention that Uber has had plans for a sort of flying transit system for about three years now. This isn't a brand new idea. Um, they have been investing heavily in all kinds of different modes of transportation. And it's also worth remembering that Uber is not just a rideshare company anymore, right? Like they're um, a public company now and their, their vision for the future very much includes expanding into food delivery and into helicopters and into autonomous vehicles and all kinds of different things. Bike share. Bike share. Scooter, um, scooter share, share. Pogo stick share. Perhaps even pogo stick share. <laughs> so... Um, you know, this is sort of just one of the ways that they're trying to innovate and perhaps reach a new group of customers um, with a sort of completely different value prop. Personally, I, I'm kind of intrigued. I agree with Lauren. $200 seems like expensive, but not It is not never so going to be $200. It is always going to be way more than $200. Yeah, but in the, beginning, pricing. in the beginning, we all know that Uber subsidizes their rides to try and get people in, right? Uber loses billions of dollars uh, by subsidizing their services. So I imagine if you get in while the going's hot, you might get that cheap, cheap $200 copter ride. Sure. <laughs> How much are the diamond members? I'm going to look that up. All right. I think you just have on. to take a lot of Uber Black and then they upgrade you. Oh, okay. Well, I haven't done that in a long time. Well, um, okay. Do y'all like games? Because I got some gaming news for you. Exciting. It actually is pretty exciting. Tell us. I'm, I'm excited about this. Okay. A few weeks ago, on this very show, Peter Rubin came on the show, and he told us all about the cloud gaming service that Google was launching. It is just one of a few platforms in the works for streaming video games from the cloud to your television. Microsoft is working on one for Xbox. Tencent has one coming soon. And Electronic Arts is planning one. But Google Stadia, as it's known, is probably going to be the first of those to launch. On Thursday of this week, Google announced some of the high-level details about when Stadia is coming and how it's going to work and how much it's going to cost. The service will launch in November, but it's only going to be available to the first people who go online now and pre-order the $130 bundle called the Stadia Founders Edition. That bundle gets you access to the streaming service, but it also comes with two pieces of hardware. You get Google's Wi-Fi-enabled Stadia controller, which grabs all the game data from Google servers, and a Chromecast Ultra that streams the games onto your television. 
there will also be a free tier coming uh, that works with other controllers made by people other than Google. It'll work with Pixel phones. It'll work with Chrome browsers. But that's not going to be available until next year, which is early 2020. So if you want to play any of the 31 titles that are coming to Google Stadia, 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 at the end of this year, then uh, you are going to have to pony up. You got to pay 130 bucks. You got to get their hardware. You got to use their hardware. Otherwise, you have to wait. And Peter, who wrote the story, Peter Rubin, wrote the story for Wired, asked Google uh, specifically when in 2020. And they said early 2020. So that could be June of next year. Okay. What are some of the titles that will be available? Oh, boy. Um, I have a list here in front of me. Um, There is going to be, let's see, Baldur's Gate 3 is a really big one that a lot of people are excited about. Uh, Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal. Uh, Dragon Ball Xenoverse 2, Elder Scrolls Online, uh, Wolfenstein Youngblood is another big one. Um, let's see, Final Fantasy 15 from Square Enix, Tomb Raider, uh, Ala- uh, Assass- Aladdin's Creed, Assassin's Creed <laughs> Odyssey. Um, that's just that's just a taste. Mortal Kombat 11. I'm excited about that. NBA one. 2000. Yep. Exciting. Yep. Cool. Anyway, that's the Stadia news. I know that you, you two aren't <laughs> big gamers, but for people who are big gamers, this is a big deal, you know, because like the idea of owning a video game, like going to the store, buying a disc, bringing it home, plugging it in, that's like pretty much almost gone at this point. Mm-hmm. Everything is download or streaming now. And it's it's pretty awesome that like a company that is not traditionally known for as a video game giant is stepping up to compete with giants in something that they are very, very good at. Like Google is really good at delivering services to your computer and your devices, whereas these other companies are 10 years behind. Well, Microsoft's been working on this too, right? Yes. Yeah, they have one coming to Xbox that Mm -hmm. everybody's expecting to be much better than this. Oh, I look forward to hearing all about that. (laughs) Um, Well, let's, uh, let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about WWDC. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. Earlier this week, Apple hosted its annual Worldwide Developer Conference, also known as WWDC, where the company launched a wide variety of interesting new software features, security measures, and yes, even some new, very, very expensive hardware. Lauren, you were there. What was the vibe? What was the takeaway? How was it? The big takeaway for me was that this felt like there was 
maybe the least amount of emphasis on iOS that I have seen at WWDC in years. Really? I've covered WWDC since 2011, which incidentally was Steve Jobs' last keynote presentation. And um, that was when I believe they introduced iCloud. If I've got my if I've got my facts straight and my memory filled with um, useless tech announcement information, <laughs> and um, and you know because the iPhone has really been the big product for Apple over the past decade or so, and has been the biggest revenue generator. A lot of the emphasis in past years just feels like it's really been like iOS, iOS, and macOS as well. But this year, it felt like um, there were a lot of interesting iOS announcements, but it really seemed as though a lot more attention was put on iPad this year. Mm -hmm. And to an extent, porting iPad apps onto Mac and making those apps run well on the Mac OS. So yeah, it was just, just sort of like a high level observation. And But that said, there were some interesting iOS features. Um, customizable Memoji. Now, how is a Memoji different from an Animoji? An Animoji is an animated cartoon character like a duck or um, a, I don't know, unicorn or something that you, it, you, you can use the facial recognition technology on your iPhone to have that cartoon um, record something in your image and likeness. But a Memoji is made in your likeness. It's supposed to look like you. So like if Ariel made a Memoji, it would be like like an ivory-skinned, dark-haired princess-looking emoji. With a grill. Yeah, with a grill. <laughs> with, <laughs> that's exactly right, with a big grill. Um, yeah, the emphasis on Memoji continues to baffle me. As a person who really, <laughs> I really like thinking about, writing about, researching avatars and icons and sort of pictograms as like ways that we represent ourselves in an increasingly technological world uh, or digital world. But um, Emoji just, I, I, I don't get it. That was one of the weirdest parts of, <laughs> of the keynote for me, actually. Um, uh, and, and just to sort of like, you know, provide some some background, like, the iOS stuff always is a whirlwind. It's always like, and this feature, and this feature, and mm -hmm. this feature, and this feature. And we, we were sort of like getting that with, with iOS 13, right? Like all of these sort of cosmetic updates, um, you know, like all the core apps look better. There's a dark mode. Like there's some like, like real security upgrades. And then out of nowhere, it switched to this like video of two beauty influencers who were not in fact flesh and blood beauty influencers, but they were disembodied Memoji heads on the screen, walking through all the new things you can do with Memoji. I was very confused. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't get Memoji, I'm not gonna lie. Like I just, I don't know, maybe I'm just too old for it, but I'm like, eh, that's like, it's an endpoint by which perhaps younger consumers or some people are like hooked into Apple's ecosystem, but that to me is just never the more exciting announcements. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, you know, they did start out by saying like, we, we've improved app performance, they're going to launch much more quickly with iOS 13. Um, the Basically, they'll download like 50% faster. I may not be getting that number exactly right because we're actually going to shrink the size of the apps. Yeah. So you can expect better stability, better performance overall. They did not say anything about battery life improvements this year. They're not expecting the software to optimize for battery life. It, they'll probably just try to maintain the way it's been um, on the hardware. But yeah, it was like, a, 
Yeah, I don't know. Then after that, it did kind of feel like just this really quick run through of things. So Ariel, you wrote about dark mode. Talk a little bit about dark mode on iOS 13. Ah, dark mode. So dark mode is one of the features that got the most applause during the iOS portion of uh, DubDub. Um, and this is, of course, if you don't know, it's um, this very trendy thing where um, designers have changed the color schemes on app interfaces so that instead of like a white background with black text, you get like a dark background with light text. Um, I have mixed feelings about dark mode. I think on the one hand, it's become very, very trendy. And there is sort of like some posturing where you like signal that you're a cool youth when you have dark mode installed on some of your apps and services. Um, but I've been doing a bit of reporting on it and it doesn't seem like it actually has any material benefits for productivity, eye strain, um, in a lot of cases, I'm not sure how apples um, will actually look, but if you're not using pure black on um, an OLED screen, you actually don't even get the battery saving benefits either. So we'll see, we'll see. I was actually most excited during the iOS segment about their <laughs> update of Maps, an app that I have Me never <laughs> used. Um, I'm an iPhone user and like, immediately disabled maps from opening because it's such a bad application and just so, so, so far behind Google Maps. Um, and one of the cool things that uh, Apple executives showed off is that they've done a lot of work to try and get maps up to speed, including remapping huge swaths of the United States and redesigning the way that key features look in the app. So, um, you know, if you if you sort of drive by the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, like you can see that on Apple's maps um, in a sort of nicely rendered way. You can now do things like share your ETA <laughs> or do street view, which again are like, these are not revolutionary concepts, but like good job Apple for finally catching up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the share the ETA thing's cool because right now if you wanna share your location, you go into iMessages, then you find the person you want to share it with, then you share your location, you have to choose choose the length of time, it seems like it should just be, here's my ETA, mm -hmm. and I'm sending it from Maps, which is a very clever idea. Um, yeah, and then I guess maybe one of the other big things that they announced and people are still talking about is this idea of Apple sign-on. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite thing. Um, basically, it's like you can use your Apple ID as uh, a valet key that you hand to another website. So you allow the website to you know, communicate with you and get your name and, you know, some information about you, but there's some things they can't do. Just like a valet key can't unlock your trunk or your glove compartment, there are certain things that that website cannot know about you if you use your Apple ID to log in. That's not always the case when you log in with, you know, with Google or you log in with Facebook or you log in with Twitter, which is still baffling to me. Um, you can, you know, you always get that little interstitial where it pops up and says, this website wants to see these seven things about you and they're all checked and then you just click okay, right? Mm -hmm. So that sort of handoff between the service and the thing that you're using to log in, I think this is awesome that Apple is getting into this. It's gonna allow people who have iPhones to use their Apple ID to get into just about every service that's out there. It's gonna let them get into banking. It's going to let them use their fingerprint or their face to log into those services because if you have an iPhone that has the Face ID, it's going to incorporate into the the Apple single sign-on, um, and you know it's if there's a company that you can trust with security and privacy of all the big companies, Apple is the one with the best report card. So I think this is a big step. I really like it. I think um, the way that Apple is going about it is 
kind of interesting because they're going to require any third-party app developer that is already using Facebook or Google for that form of authentication, mm -hmm. they are now going to require them to use Apple sign-on. Right. Your app will not right. be approved if you've decided to go with Facebook or Google for auth and you don't include Apple sign-on. Now, that doesn't mean that we as the end users to use a very nerdy phrase, have to use it, but it has to be presented to us as an option on the iPhone when you first go to sign into an app. Um, my other question that I kept asking Apple was, well, what happens if I use Apple Sign-On to download, you know, I download an app, I use Apple Sign-On to sign up for that app, that service for the first time, and then at some point in my life, I'm not using mm -hmm. an Apple device or an Apple browser. Um, they basically said that you will be rerouted back to apple.com to then authenticate and mm -hmm. then to get into the app from another device. Um, and then the last part is we don't really know just yet how developers really feel about this. What I've heard is that a lot of them were asking for it because they were dealing with having to hand over a lot of their analytics and their data from their customers over to Facebook and Google because they were using them for auth and they'd rather hand that over to Apple because of the way that it's treated. But it also means they may lose a little bit of that direct communication with the person who's downloading an app. Yep. So they may have to get clever. So for example, if I decide to obscure my Gmail when I download an app, then that developer is not going to have my Gmail. They're going to have that totally scrambled, unique email that Apple has generated for me during that sign-on process. But the, throughout the app flow later on, they might do something clever like enter your email here and get 10% off your first order and stuff like that. So I think you're going to see a lot of workarounds where developers are still just trying to figure out a way to get your email and have a direct relationship with you. Yeah. Collecting that data and building a list of your customers is like super important. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, you know, when, when everybody started talking about single sign-on, 10 years ago, however long ago it was, that was one of the big things. There were a lot of companies and organizations, institutions that didn't want to give up that critical piece of data, which is your email address. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was pretty interesting that Apple's offering that that obfuscation of your email address as like a base feature of this. Right. Now, Lauren, you mentioned the iPad announcements as being one of the standouts for you. And part of what was interesting here is that um, you know, Apple always goes through like all the various operating systems on all of its devices, right? You go iOS, you get watchOS, you get macOS. And this time they introduced something called PadOS? iPadOS. iPadOS, which, yes. which um, sort of was presented as like a dedicated iPad operating system, which included tons of new updates, which will hopefully make the iPad function more like a bonafide computer. Um, but like, what is your sense of how that's different from iOS, which has in the past been the same operating system that runs across iPhones and iPads alike? Um, like, what is what is iPadOS? So on the one hand, iPadOS is just a name. And on the other hand, it's not just a name because it signals something else. So iPadOS is iOS. In fact, if you picked up a new iPad that happened to be lying around in demo areas during WWDC this week and you saw very early versions of iOS 13, and you picked up an iPad and you went into settings and you looked at the, you know, the general information or about or whatever, I'm actually forgetting which setting it is right now, it says iOS 13. You're running iOS 13, even though Apple is referring to it as iPad OS. It is still basically, it's the same operating system. It's built off of UIKit. It's built off the same kernel. But 
the iPad now has become so distinctive in Apple's mind and they don't, you know, the collective mind and the company doesn't want people to think about it just as an I, a giant iPhone anymore. They want people to think about it as its own separate computing platform that they've given it a name. And it's probably internally to some way to focus people, focus engineers and developers who are working on certain platforms to be like, no, you are working on this. This is what you're building for now. And it's probably a way to focus outside app developers too, to say like, build this for iPad OS, even though effectively you're still building it for iOS 13. So some of the new features we saw around iPad this week had to do with gesture control. It had to do with the fact that you could now plug in an external drive and the iPad will recognize it, which you could never do before. It shows up in like the files thing. Um, you can now, you can't, so you still can't really manipulate desktop windows, but you can pin the today widget to the quote unquote desktop. I, I have like no, lack of a better phrase, the desktop, the home screen <laughs> of the iPad. Um, you can start calling it the desktop then, at this point. I know. I, I want to call it a desktop, but it's like still not there just yet. Um, there are different ways that you can man- manipulate apps. You can open up different pages in apps. You can open up multiple instances of apps at the same time. So all of these things are really pointing towards Apple seeing this as, um, we want this to be the future of computing. I think they want it to be the future of computing. They realize that there is a huge segment of the population that grew up with computers that is still very familiar and and tied to the way we manipulate a desktop on a computer. Um, and so they're like sort of adding more of those features in, um, but still charging ahead with iPad as like the the future computing platform. That was my take from it. So if they are if they're making iPad more desktopy and they're making desktops a little more iPad-y, we saw some evidence of that with them killing off iTunes mm-hmm. and going to more, you know, sort of single serving apps, more like a mobile operating system. That's a that's a sort of a, a, a cross pollination, a melding, um, a squishing together that's been happening for the last couple of years, right? And um, tell us a little bit about what you think is Apple's future here and like what it's doing as far as pushing the mobile devices into the desktop and pushing the desktop towards mobile. Well, you have to remember too that Apple, for the most part, anything they're working on usually has, um, it can have as long as like a three-year lead time, you know? So, So we may not, they may be very well thinking that two to three years from now, we are going to all be using these touchscreen computers. They're effectively some melding of the desktop and you know the or your laptop, I should say, your clamshell laptop and your iPad. And this is really just incrementally moving towards that. When I spoke with Apple software chief Craig Federighi last year at WWDC, he was still really against the idea of a touchscreen laptop. And Apple has just like put their but it, you know, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Put their foot down. They put their foot down. Thank you. I'm, I'm mixing up. We're mixing up all kinds of cliches today. They put <laughs> their foot down. They said they're not into touchscreen laptops. The iPad is a touchscreen device. That's like the what else do you need, right? And then the laptop is still something that you use for like a lot of productivity. But you are right. And then the software side, there is this like very obvious merging happening. It really is. It's it's. Um, I mean, I think the the fact that they're you're getting they're not getting rid of iTunes, but they're moving it to the Finder, which is essentially like they're moving it to the basement. It's like here, your office is in the basement now, mm. or like um, your office is on the roof. Yeah, your office <laughs> is on the roof, exactly like Huli. Yeah. Um, yeah, good reference. Um, you know, I think that that shows that they're really looking at these apps as the future of computing, and not only that, but they want the apps to work almost interchangeably between 
iPad and Mac OS um, with this new project catalyst, which is the old Marzipan. So the yeah. old Marzipan, no, the old Marzipan. <laughs> so project catalyst is the name that they gave to this initiative to get iPad apps running on the desktop. That's correct. Okay. And it's interesting that it's iPad apps and not iOS apps. Right. But yeah, iPad apps. And so now iPad when, OS, or as I pronounce it, Ipados. Ipados <laughs> sounds like like a, like a Greek island or something. Yeah. Or a beer. We're vacationing IPA in Ipados this summer. Yeah, <laughs> we're taking the ferry to Ipados. Um, yeah. So um, that was project. So Marzipan was the code name as reported, though Apple never used that publicly about their project of, of allowing developers to easily port Macs over to the Mac. And now they're calling it Project Catalyst. And it was unveiled in a little bit more of a formal way this week. So when a developer now is building an app, they're in Xcode, they could just check a box, according to Apple. This is how easy and breezy it is, although I don't think it's very customizable. And then <laughs> and then your and then your iPad app will run very well on the Mac. Now what's interesting about that to me is that it seems like Apple still has to make a good case for why there are certain things you'd want an app for. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do so many things on the web, like says the person who has 20 tabs open in Chrome right now. I'm sure we all do. And to me, you really have to make a good case or a compelling case for why someone would want to live within the app container or the app environment. And not only that, but why someone would want to pay for an app within an app container or app environment, which of course, if it's done through the app store, Apple gets 30% of mm-hmm. versus going and paying for a service or subscribing to a service on the web, which means the developer gets to keep the revenue. Yeah. Also, it's very difficult to sandbox the web. Mm-hmm. So they can uh, ensure that their devices are going to run more smoothly if they force people into apps and force people off the web. I just think it's very ironic because if you go back to the launch of iOS and the launch of the iPhone, there was that big moment where it was like, so what are we going to do about applications mm-hmm. on this thing? Well, we've got a great solution for you. Just use the browser. N- nat- oh, oh, I thought you were going to say native apps. But yeah, you're right. It was the browser first. Yeah, mm-hmm. Just build a great web app in the browser. And everybody kind of went, oh. <laughs> But you know, it's it that did this have WebKit. that did have good like that that decision and that sort of commandment from Apple ended up having really positive repercussions because it made everybody go out and design their websites in a way that they would load well in a mobile browser. And we would not have the mobile web, you know, it, or we would have the mobile web, but mobile web would not mm-hmm. look at like it does now. It would not work the way that it does now had they not done that. But the only reason they did that is because they didn't have the App Store ready. So it's kind of weird how it all played out. Kind of ironic now that they're trying to get you off of the web and onto apps. It is, but this is where they're making a lot of their money. Services mm-hmm. is such a fast-growing business for Apple, as some of the hardware sales have slowed in growth, that they want to get you into those app containers and paying for services within apps. You know where else they're making a lot of money? $6,000 computers. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, tell us about that computer. What do you guys greater. think? Do you think we'll get one in the room here just to produce the Gadget Lab podcast? I think we must have one. I think so. I'm working on a spec, an RFP, <laughs> submitted for approval. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was the long-awaited Mac Pro. Apple had said a couple of years ago in interviews with the press that they were holding off on releasing it at the time. They were rethinking the whole thing from the ground up. My best informed guess is that at the time, um, some of the specs that they were aiming for were just not really there yet. Mm. 
like having supportive 8K video or having a 6K monitor. If they had tried to, well, if they had tried to launch this in 2016 or 2017, it basically would probably not have supported those things. And then you would have had pros who spent, you know, potentially tens of thousands of dollars in these systems and fast forward to 2019 and like YouTubers are uploading an 8K video, um, right? So, and they need to render things really, really quickly and 8K video takes a really long time to render. So, yeah. um, so I think they like not only rethought the Mac Pro, but they were waiting for the right moment and this seemed like the right moment to announce it. It's ridiculously expensive. It's a beautiful machine, but it's going to cost you $6,000 to start. And that's before you start loading it up with like, you know, all kinds of, uh, of graphics processors and double graphics processors and compartments and um, and then there's the display XDR, the Pro Display XDR that starts at five thousand dollars, and that is the six K Retina monitor. Uh, and then there is on top of that the thousand dollar stand and the Vesa mount adapter, which is two hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a lot of money. I just want to be clear. It's not going to cost you six thousand mm-hmm. dollars because you are never going to buy it. No, that's like this true. is a machine <laughs> that is made for people who like basically work in Hollywood and shoot on red. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if you're shooting on a red camera, you're you're shooting on an eight K sensor, and then you're exporting like four K or six K or something like that, depending on what you're exporting for, right? But like you know, you watch all of those shows on Netflix and Amazon and HBO, and all of them are shot on these like super nice cameras, and people are editing those things on machines that they're custom building and cost way more than the Mac Pro costs. Mm-hmm. So from like a professional standpoint as like, you know, a professional tool for Hollywood to use, baller. Super awesome. Oh, I'm yeah. sure they're all I'm sure they're all excited. When you well, think I can't about be sure of it, but uh, I'm sure a lot of them are and those big budgets especially. And and when you think about the how much money that Avid edit bays used to cost, yeah. which was in the very high tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And then to shrink that down where you're basically running an instance of Avid on your Mac Pro and you're only maybe paying 10,000 to start. Mm -hmm. um, That I imagine that is pretty exciting for a lot of people. But for the average consumer, it's just, you know, it's like looking at the McLaren and just being like, yep, no, not for me, can't do that. (laughs) The only thing that upset me about the Mac Pro announcement was that Everybody was talking about, um, oh, my God, it looks just like a cheese grater. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it looks just like a cheese grater. But don't you remember when, like, all desktop Macs looked like a cheese grater? Not only five years ago, mm-hmm. six years ago, mm-hmm. they were all cheese graters. And we mm-hmm. called them cheese graters. <laughs> Since when did all of you people forget <laughs> that... The computers need vents. <laughs> that the computer, it was, like, nicknamed the cheese grater. So I, I sat there in my in the mom's basement of my mind feeling angry about this for about 39 seconds and then I got over it and remembered that I'm adult I'm an adult male and those things don't matter. I'm glad that we can all tell you're over it now. Yeah, thank you. Cheese grater was a trending term on Twitter that morning. That's that's what really that's what really cheesed me off. <laughs> that's what really grated on me. Was that I looked at Twitter and I saw that it was trending and I was like, "No, but uh, you know, when okay, never mind." I'm you're done. sounding really aged. Right now. Yep, mm-hmm. I am. Maybe, you know, I think maybe uh, Cheddar might be interested in having you on to talk about this. Oh, you should gosh. go talk to them. Cheddar TV. Please, no. I think this Please, is getting no. a bit stinky. Bring it on. The big you blue. Oh, no. It would be good right, uh, right. if we could move on. Yeah, yeah no, we're just really stilted in the conversation here. <laughs> um, well, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll do our recommendations. Great. I'm Reed Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. 
if you are interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, it is time for our recommendations. Mike Lori, since you had to suffer through everybody talking about the Mac Pro being a cheese grater as though that's a new thing this week and feeling <laughs> sensed about it and stressed for approximately 39 seconds, why don't you go first? Okay, I have a recommendation. It's Pure Joy. It is a podcast uh, hosted by Ron Funches. It's called Getting Better. Oh, hell yeah. It's such a great podcast. I started listening to this just last week. I've listened to like three episodes. I absolutely love it. They're on number 42 right now. Um, Ron Funches is a stand-up comedian. Uh, you may know him from uh, his most recent special called Giggle Fit, which is not on Netflix but is streaming elsewhere for money. And you should pay it and watch it because it is absolutely hilarious. He's a really funny guy. He's also just like a really sweet man. He has a lot of uh, very you know tender observations about life. And something that he has been doing over the last year or two is working on himself. Uh, he's lost a bunch of weight. He's been going to therapy. He's been talking about his feelings. He's been talking about his problems. And a lot of that happens on this podcast called Getting Better. And he has people come on the show and talk about how they're getting better. They talk about their insecurities. They talk about their addictions. They talk about their problems and how they're working through them. Uh, and the people who are on the show are mostly people from the world of comedy. Uh, he's also, Ron is also a huge fan of pro wrestling. Uh, so he talks about pro wrestling quite a bit, and sometimes he and his guests talk about pro wrestling. Even if you're not into pro wrestling, it's still fascinating to listen to people talk about why they like pro wrestling, because every 90 seconds they need to, like, justify that it's good and fun. So they have to keep, like, you know, throwing it out there, like, it's okay to like pro wrestling. Anyway, <laughs> some of the people that were on there recently, uh, let's see, Ken Jennings, Ryan Hurst, stand-up comedian Pete Holmes... Uh, Margaret Cho, who we all know and love, Deborah Giovanni, Jason Ritter, Brad Williams, the list goes on. And I'm going to stop right there. Uh, Ron Funches, Getting Better. Getting Better. Great podcast. That sounds awesome. And Ron Funches is genuinely so funny. Oh, my God. It's just, you know, it's like I can't listen to it. Well, I can listen to it on the bus. I just have to deal with you know, the weird looks that I get when I start busting out <laughs> laughing at something that he says. Can we have him on the podcast? I'll invite him. Ron, if you're listening, come on the podcast. It'll be fun. We could talk about our problems. Come into the lab. Ariel, what's your recommendation? I would like to recommend an app called Moobert for when you're tired of listening to the same old songs on Spotify and want to listen to a track of music that is one of a kind, made by a machine, and never ends which sounds pretty weird, but uh, <laughs> it actually is a, a very cool <laughs> a very cool app that belongs to this genre of music called generative music, um, which is basically music that is created by algorithms. Um, this isn't sort of the same as like AI-drived music where you're like dumping a bunch of songs into a machine learning program and then it's spitting out something that sounds like that. Um, generative music is like in some ways more creative and random um, because they're algorithms that use various inputs and then the output is sort of different every time. Um, so Mo Moobert is one of these apps um, 
that does this, you can select from different types of, uh, how do I want to explain this? You can select different categories of music, like work or study, or there's like weirdly one for getting high. Um, and Hell then yeah. <laughs> you select one of these categories and um, an algorithm sort of spits out something magical um, that just sort of goes on and on and on and on and on and on until you close the app. It's really cool. I've been listening to it a lot when I um, am like on long walks or when I'm commuting or sometimes when I'm at the office. Um, and I've really been enjoying it. That sounds really cool. Can yeah. I also kick in for uh, an app that's similar to it called Endel? Endel is great. Yeah, I, I was using that one for a while. Um, I put it on like Focus. Yeah. And it gives you this sort of like light techno. And you know, you really just start like feeling like you're listening to music. Yeah, so Endel is cool because um, part of their process is that they use um, inputs that come from sensors on your phone. So it will use something like, for example, um, if you're wearing like a, an Apple Watch that syncs with HealthKit in your iPhone, Endel could like pull your heart rate data and generate something that matches your heart rate. It can sense um, the weather in your city and generate something based on the temperature. Um, so you get this sort of like magical randomness that somehow feels like custom made for you, um, but it's like actually made by a machine. It's tight. <laughs> nice. Generative music apps. We live in the future. Lauren, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is I highly recommend that all of you go see John Wick 3. Ooh. Actually, I don't recommend that all of you go see it because some of you inevitably are going to hate it. And I recommend if you're going to go see it that you watch John Wick 1 and 2 first, which are available on demand. Because there are a couple of different thread lines that I think you really need to understand before you can fully appreciate John Wick 3. But I'm a John Wick fan. Um, it's about an assassin. And early on in the John Wick trilogy, he's a retired assassin. But something really jarring brings him out of retirement. And it's based in New York City. And I love how much the filmmakers play with geography. Like, for example, one moment you might be in Brooklyn, and the next moment you might be in the Oculus downtown, and the next moment you're at Cipriani Midtown. I don't know how this works. In the world of John Wick, geography does not matter. It is New Wick City. It is not New York City. He could be downtown in the financial district at this one hotel called the Continental, where a lot of the assassins hang out, but they're not allowed to do business on the grounds of the Continental, which means you can't kill anybody there. Um, everyone has to be civil. And... Um, Anyway, at the end of John Wick 2, <laughs> I could go on and on and on. So at the end of Wait, John... who knew that Lauren was, like, such a John Wick obsessive? Oh, I'm raising yeah. my hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mike sits next to me, so he's like, yeah, um, I know. I also stand, like, for Keanu really hard, um, because I'm pretty sure that Keanu is the closest thing to Jesus Christ we have in the modern century. So I'm, I'm a big Keanu Reeves fan, and I have been since, since the early aughts of his career. And um, it's funny, because, like, when you read interviews with him that people do it's like if you're a woman of a certain age you're pretty much like so I had Keanu Reeves posters on my wall in the 90s and then you know and then they get to interview him anyway um <laughs> just saying I'm available for interviews so so <laughs> where is it going I got so you started talking Lauren about Keanu Reeves via con Dios are you blushing I, no. is it warm in here or is that okay. just Lauren thinking about Keanu Reeves um, so, can, I, can I ask you about Keanu real quick uh, uh, go I ahead mean, this is a serious question I have yeah. I have been thinking about this before you even brought it up I was thinking about this mm -hmm. 
Keanu is having a moment right now mm-hmm. where not only is he in the new John Wick movie and he's in, um, what's the the name of the rom-com that he's in? Oh, it was in Ali Wong's Ali movie. Ali Wong's movie yeah. on Netflix. I don't remember the name of it, but yeah, uh, be my ma- be my always, oh. ma- always Be My Maybe. Yes. He has a, a, a cameo appearance in that. And it turned into a meme. Uh-huh. He, like in the previous months, he's sort of been everywhere in our culture. Why? Is why are we so Keanu obsessed right now on the internet? I think it's because he has kept such a low profile. I think there's so much about him that we still don't know, and it's in this age of every celebrity or most celebrities really having to put it all out there because they have to build their brand and they have to build it across multiple platforms. They have to share everything about their lives. And um, some of them probably want to, and some of them probably don't really want to do that, and yet they feel compelled to because it's part of the business. And he just doesn't. He just doesn't. I mean, I think people snap photos of him out and about. There was the sad Keanu meme for a while of him eating a sandwich looking really forlorn. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that happens because it's part of celebrity life. But it just seems like most people, when they've had interactions with him, just said he just seems like a nice guy. And um, he doesn't seem to have too much sordid gossip about his love life and all of that. And it uh, just seems like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it's happening now. But perhaps it's just... Uh, He's also like apolitical, from what I can tell, and just just a like a glimpse of a Hollywood that no longer exists, I guess. Okay, be honest. What is the Keanu temperature if you had to take it between one and one hundred? What does that mean exactly? I mean, like, how hot is he? I mean, well, he's you know he's he's uh, in his fifties now. He still does a lot of his own fight scenes and things like that. He doesn't do stunts, but he'll do like fight scenes. And um, I would say he's at about 107. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. I just had to be – I had to say something dramatic because you set me up for it. I don't know. I don't know. Let me think. Let me chew on that one. Um, so here's the thing about John Wick, the film – the films though guys is that they're overly dramatic it's you have to have a you have to go in with a certain sense of humor there are it's ridiculous but you get the sense the filmmaker knows the filmmaker knows it's ridiculous like he kills a man with a book you know there are scenes with horses that you're like what how is this happening how is this happening there are really dramatic captions the captions are vaguely cartoonish um the you know the People say things about him like El Bube Yaga in very deep voices because they're like saying, which is like Russian for boogeyman. I don't know. It's like everything is so dramatized. Everything's a caricature. Um, Sounds like a lot of fun. Halle Berry makes a really, really fantastic appearance in in, uh, John Wick 3. Yeah. Nice. And she doesn't need to be saved at any point. She She just kicks butt. I'm going to stop talking now. Everyone go see John Wick. I feel like we should do an entire podcast episode about Keanu. I think so, too. I think we should invite him on the podcast. Yeah. I'll reach out. As, <laughs> as soon as my, as soon as my uh, email out to Ron Funch is clear as Q, I'll send, uh, <laughs> I'll send one out to Keanu. Well, Jack Stewart, from who is now, where is he now? Marketplace. Marketplace, that's right. <laughs> she says with a yawn. Yeah, whatever, Jack Stewart. We don't miss you at all. Um, he was with Wired for a while, and he did a video with Keanu. He did. Around motorcycles. Yeah, where he looked at he looked at motorcycles in VR. That's right. Keanu bought a motorcycle company. Yeah. I mean, when you make that much money off of the Matrix movies, it's like, sure, why not? It's called Arch. Arch, Arch Motorcycles. I don't know. I just call it Keanu Bikes. 
Uh, Well, thank you all for listening to our show this week. And if you enjoyed this episode, or even if you have other feedback, like you absolutely hated it, please leave us a review on iTunes, fill out the stars, write it in the little box, and hit send so we'll read it. Really, we would love to hear it. All of your feedback, whatever you want to tell us, send it our way. You can also find us on Twitter. Ariel, what's your handle on Twitter? At Part Esoteric. And Lauren, you are? At Lauren Good with an E. And I am at Snackfight. And you can talk to all of us by tweeting at Gadget Lab. And until next week, we bid you adieu. I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.